Welcome to London Locate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Leonard Lopate. Pandemics have been with us since prehistoric times, and each one of them has a story. Are there lessons from history's other pandemics that we should be applying to today's? Dr. Richard Gunderman, a renowned medical expert, explores some of the most notorious, grisly, and pernicious communicable diseases the world has ever known, how they spread, and how societies both ancient and modern have coped with them in his latest book, Contagion. Plagues, Pandemics, and Cures from the Black Death to COVID-19 and Beyond. It's published by the Welbeck Group and brings Dr. Gunderman to our show now. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Your book is full of illustrations. Is that to make it easier for your readers to understand this very complex subject? I think in part, yes. Uh, My specialty in medicine is radiology. And uh, we're very visual, you know, we, we make our living and make our contributions to patients by looking at image. So I'm a naturally image oriented person to begin with. But I think also some of the images from the past uh, make those lessons of the past uh, much more easy to connect with and learn from. Now, there's no way we can get to everything, but... Let's try our best. You begin by noting that the world has made great progress in reducing the tolls of of many once prominent infectious diseases, but uh, don't some remain a serious problem, at least in parts of the world? Oh, absolutely. I can remember in the 1970s, a highly respected expert wondering aloud whether we had uh, reached the end of the era of infectious disease. He was thinking about the year 1900 when the major killers were infectious diseases like tuberculosis. And of course, they had declined a great deal by the 1970s. And uh, he was inclined, I think, to write their uh, epitaph. But as we know, tuberculosis is still around. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We have not eliminated tuberculosis. And of course, it was only a few years before what we uh, later learned was the HIV AIDS epidemic appeared. So mm-hmm. we have not put infectious diseases behind us, although they have been replaced, at least until recently, by other more important causes of death like heart disease, cancer, and stroke. When are infectious agents called contagious? Well, basically, uh, contagion means uh, coming together to touch. And, uh, you know, people realized a long time ago, before anybody knew there were such things as viruses or bacteria, that it was close contact between people, perhaps actually touching, perhaps touching something somebody else who was infected had touched, or simply perhaps breathing in the air someone else had breathed. Uh, was at least a major factor in uh, acquiring the infections. Uh, The latest, of course, is COVID-19. And uh, many people have talked about globalization as um, being making us vulnerable to new and deadly diseases. But some of the diseases you write about affected much of the world thousands of years ago. That's absolutely right. For example, the Black Plague in the 14th century uh, spread from Asia to Europe and uh, may have taken the lives of of more than 100 million, perhaps 200 million people, uh, a figure that's staggering today. 
and would have been all the more remarkable back then because the population of the earth is so much lower. Now that infection spread obviously not by intercontinental jet travel, but rather by um, you know people moving along trade routes. Uh, so it took months and years for the Black Plague to split, spread rather than just, uh, you know, these days you could perhaps get from a province, let's say Wuhan province, China, to a major city in the United States in just 24 hours. It's also called the bubonic plague and, and the Black Death. Uh, why is so many different titles? And uh, isn't it thought to have been spread by fleas? Yes, that's absolutely right. We think fleas were the vectors often carried on small mammals like rats, but it was the fleas that were crucial in spreading the disease. And in fact, it has names like the bubonic plague because of the characteristic buboes patients would develop. This was really impressive, massive swelling of lymph nodes that we all have in our necks and armpits and so forth. In afflicted patients, those would swell up tremendously, sometimes even rupture, but that's where it gets the name bubonic uh, plague for the buboes. Didn't it inspire the structure of Boccaccio's The Decameron, one of the greatest works of literature? Boy, that's a great point. Uh, the plague came to Florence and, uh, you know, people were wise enough to realize that staying in Florence was probably not a good survival strategy. So a group of, I mean, in Boccaccio's tale, a group of young adults decides to leave town and uh, comfort and amuse themselves by telling one another's tales. But presumably they wouldn't have gone on that journey had there not been plague back home in Florence. Sounds like some things that are happening today. Uh, you write that it led the, uh, the Black Death, the bubonic plague, whatever, led to a major reordering of society and that its influence is still being felt today? Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, you know, the plague was no respecter of persons. So whether you were poor or rich, uh, famous or obscure, uh, you know, powerful or impotent, uh, the plague struck everybody. And in many cases, individuals in the upper classes contracted it, people who controlled uh, land on which peasants were working. And once those uh, the landowners, the feudal lords died, uh, you know, the peasants were left with no one whose uh, orders they had to follow. And uh, there, there was an abrupt and terrible shortage in the labor market. So all of a sudden, uh, people who can only get by with subsistence farming kind of had the upper hand and uh, they were able to command higher wages for their work. So we had a kind of reordering and perhaps in some respects, even a leveling of society. What ended it? Uh, we don't really know the answer to that. That is a great question. And so often we don't really know why these pandemics recede into the background. It could be that the most susceptible individuals have either become immune as a result of being infected uh, or that uh, those who were most susceptible of it uh, to it have died. But one thing we know for certain, the Black Plague didn't disappear because doctors showed up with prescription yeah. pads that they had, uh, you know, their antibiotic prescriptions filled at local pharmacies. Uh, how do we know that there were pandemics during prehistoric times? Well, you know, we can see uh, archaeological evidence of, for example, the Egyptian pharaohs, their mummies, 
show very clear signs that they were afflicted with tuberculosis. There, for example, lesions in their spines uh, where some of the vertebrae, the, the backbones have collapsed. That's just a classic feature of tuberculosis. And, uh, you know, the, the, in fact, there's evidence going back even before recorded history from exhumation of human remains uh, that human beings have at least been the victims of uh, infectious disease as long as there have been human beings. And then there are some uh, what appear to be mass burials where a number of people died all at once, not from starvation or from trauma, uh, but from infectious disease. So, you know, th th they've been our constant partners as long as there have been people. And how did the ancients explain pandemics? Boy, that was a real problem for them because, uh, you know, we all take for granted, well, of course, they're caused by viruses and, and bacteria and so forth. But it's important to remember that the microscope wasn't invented until about 400 years ago. So nobody had ever really seen, you know, what we call a bacterium. And it was, in fact, only in the 1930s that an instrument called the electron microscope was invented that enabled us to see viruses. So thousands of years ago, nobody could have known about and probably didn't even suspect the existence of uh, bacteria and viruses. But uh, ancient uh, medical theorists like Hippocrates, everybody's heard of the Hippocratic Oath that doctors take uh, uh, in medical school. Hippocrates theorized that at least one of the causes might be bad air, uh, later called miasma. And, and one suggestion you might give, if, if that was your theory, would be that the patient who's ill should relocate. And, you know, many of us know people, even in the 20th century, who were urged to relocate, let's say, from a wet climate to a dry climate. So while these theories were first propounded thousands of years ago, they've uh, by no means completely disappeared. You write that one of the most remarkable features of Hippocrates' medicine is its holism. What does that mean? Well, Hippocrates uh, wasn't uh, a dissector. He wasn't interested in anatomy as, as later doctors and scientists were. So he was less inclined to try to discover where the, whether the disease was seated in the brain or the heart or the liver. He was inclined to treat the human organism as a whole and to understand uh, disease and for that matter health as a matter of uh, a kind of balance between different forces in the body. And of course, we kind of have both those schools of thought today. On the one hand, uh, you know, if somebody comes to me experiencing what we'd call right lower quadrant abdominal pain, one of my thoughts is, could it be the appendix? Might the patient have appendicitis? Uh, let's get an ultrasound scan or a CT scan to find out. But on the other hand, we still take for granted that there are diseases that affect the whole human organism. And of course, one of those would be uh, many infectious diseases, the flu, COVID-19, the whole patient gets a fever. You know, it's not, not just confined to a part of the chest or the abdomen. So even today, we're living with kind of a balance between uh, a school of thought that wants to localize disease in a particular part of the body and a school of thought that recognizes that the disease is somehow part of the whole person. Was Hippocrates alive during the plague of Athens, uh, which was during the Peloponnesian War? 
Uh, we think not, but I have to say in all honesty, there's some doubt whether the figure Hippocrates ever really existed. I mean, some scholars have suggested that what we have is, is the work of a school which became identified with a physician from the island of cause called Hippocrates. But the historical details or even veracity of Hippocrates' existence is at least a matter of debate. What caused the plague of Athens, and uh, how was it explained at the time? You say well, a, it altered the car, You say it altered the course of history. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, many listeners will remember at the end of the fifth century B.C. For about thirty years, there was a war between uh, the city-state of Sparta and its allies and the city-state of Athens and its allies. You know, this is the Peloponnesian War recounted by the great Greek historian Thucydides. And uh, the, the, the Spartans were terrific at land warfare, and the Athenians had a superior naval force. So when good weather came in the summer, the Spartans would march over to Athens, and uh, the Athenians had, had devised the strategy of withdrawing within the walls of the city. Uh, they still had access to their ports, so they could still trade for food and supplies and so forth, but they wouldn't meet the Spartans on the field of battle. They'd just wait them out inside the city walls. Well, you know, maybe a great idea, as long as Athens only had about 100,000 people within the city walls, but once several hundred thousand more people withdrew from the countryside into the city walls, all of a sudden you had people living on top of each other. Uh, and when you get population densities that great, obviously it's very easy for infectious organisms to spread. And then things like hygiene and sanitation tend to deteriorate. So the Athenians were actually uh, severely damaged uh, by that plague that broke out within Athens. And it basically debilitated the, the city-state of Athens such that they really couldn't compete effectively with the Spartans anymore. And the Spartans uh, end up winning that war. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is Dr. Richard Gunderman. Uh, his book, Contagion, Plagues, Pandemics, and Cures from the Black Death to COVID-19 and Beyond, is published by the Welbeck Group. Um, you call it, uh, you call COVID-19 the novel coronavirus SARS-CoV-2 in your book. Is that its medical name? And uh, since it's a long name, can we just keep on calling it COVID-19? Yeah, I'm for that. COVID-19 would be the disease and SARS would be the virus that causes it. Uh, SARS, of course, stands for severe acute respiratory syndrome. The CoV part stands for coronavirus. And this is the second coronavirus outbreak, uh, a different strain of the virus. Uh, that we've confronted in the last 20 or so years, hence the two at the end. And what was the previous one? Uh, that was SARS, which is in, was in the early 2000s, particularly in Asia. Uh, its biggest center here in North America was in the city of Toronto when somebody who'd attended a wedding in Asia returned to Toronto, and, and, and some people in the city of Toronto fell ill as well. Now, we uh, know an awful lot about diseases now, but has uh, COVID-19 taught us anything new about infectious diseases? 
Boy, I think so. I mean, one of the lessons is a very happy one, namely that because of uh, the laboratories that exist, the equipment in those laboratories, the expert researchers working there, uh, we appear to have the capacity to uh, sequence the genome of a virus like SARS-CoV-2 to use that information to design a vaccine to test that vaccine and to get it into production and distribute it in many parts of the world in what turns out to be a period of a little over a year. And I don't know of any uh, case in, the, in, in human history where uh, such an effective response has been mounted in such short a period of time uh, to a pandemic infectious disease. The viruses join bacteria, parasites, uh, arthropod uh, as uh, infectious diseases, but aren't they the smallest? Does that make them more difficult to trace and combat? Well, uh, yeah, so viruses are the smallest. They're in a way the last ones of, of the big three or four we could identify because they're so small, maybe a hundredth or a tenth the diameter of uh, a bacterium. So that, that makes it harder. But on the other hand, viruses are very simple uh, organisms. In fact, there's some debate in biology over whether they're really living organisms, because when a virus is out there floating in the air, it's not really doing anything until it's, let's say, inhaled by somebody and is able to infect a cell, at which point it tells that cell, like one of the cells lining the epithelium, the, the outer layer of our respiratory tract, uh, it basically takes over the cell and turns it into a virus factory. And, uh, the, you know, it's just basically a cover, a membrane with the genetic material in it. And because of that, viruses are, are in some ways an easier foe to deal with because they're somewhat simple organisms. But, and they're using the host genetic material to replicate themselves? Is that well, they're, yeah, they're using the host's protein manufacturing machinery, you might say, or equipment, yeah, to make more copies of, of themselves, a virus. And by the way, one reason uh, we hear about variants, you know, there, there's a variant called the, the UK variant, uh, uh, South Africa variant, a Brazil variant. One and now, that, and now a New York City variant. Yeah, Just you're recently. absolutely right. One reason we hear of these variants is because uh, that the virus isn't a photocopier, by which I mean it cannot make perfect copies of itself every time. So when it reproduces, so to speak, when a cell starts churning out new virus particles, uh, there are defects in some of them, which of course we call mutations. Now, most of those mutations are bad for the virus and you know it doesn't survive. But occasionally, one of those mutations may make it even more infectious, that is easier to spread, or may produce even more severe in a ho- uh, severe disease in a host who's infected with it. Aren't ancient viruses part of the inherited makeup of our current DNA? Yeah, I think that is absolutely right. There's pretty f- clear evidence that uh, viruses, in- including some worked on here at, at where I am at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana, uh, called bacteriophages, 
that uh, when they infect one organism and, and make new viruses, sometimes that host organism's genes are incorporated. And viruses may have been one way that genes could spread from one species to another and may have played a very important role in the history of evolution. It's been estimated that there are about 5 million trillion bacteria on Earth. Can you put that into perspective? And how does that compare with the number of viruses on Earth? Yeah, that's just, <laughs> unfortunately, Five the number million of trillion. viruses. The Republicans it, objected to that number. Yeah, well, you know, the, the, the short answer is we don't know for sure how many there are, but it's a very reasonable estimate. But I do want listeners to know that uh, we ourselves may be greater in number than we ever supposed, by which I mean... Uh, we think an adult human being, uh, in our body, there are about 75 trillion cells. That's the number 75 followed by 12 zeros. So, you know, compared to the 100,000 or so hairs on your head, uh, that's a huge number. So when we move into the world of the very small, numbers tend to skyrocket. Now, we uh, often treat... Uh, bacteria with certain kinds of drugs, but uh, do they develop, how do they develop resistance to drugs? Well, basically, uh, thinking about bacteria and antibiotics, uh, many listeners may know it's, it's been a practice to treat livestock, uh, you know, cows and chickens and so forth with antibiotics uh, to promote their growth. The problem is anytime you've got antibiotics, uh, you know, in a lot of organisms, they're going to kill the bacteria that, uh, you know, that are susceptible to the antibiotics, but they create conditions under which if a bacterium develops a mutation that renders it immune to those antibiotics, in other words, the antibiotics can't kill it, then that bacterium is going to have a huge advantage and be able to proliferate and, you know, might then spread to human beings who end up with antibiotic resistance, uh, resistant infections. Some people may have heard of what we in healthcare tend to call MRSA, methicillin resistant staph aureus. That's an example of a, of, of a, uh, of a bacterium that bedevils us in places like hospitals today. Well, it developed uh, perhaps because we were using antibiotics a little bit too widely for too long, and we ended up selecting for an antibiotic resistant strain. What are the most common illnesses caused by bacteria? Uh, well, today? one, uh, for example, pneumonia, which of course is an infection of the lungs, that can be caused by viruses, including, of course, uh, COVID-19. But many cases, in fact, the most common cause of pneumonia in, in the general population, in other words, people not living, say, in a long-term care facility or a hospital, uh, the most common cause is a bacterium uh, we call Streptococcus pneumoniae. We often call that, uh, if patient has pneumonia, pneumococcal pneumonia. Have uh, coronaviruses always existed? Is that, uh, aren't they uh, the cause of the common cold? 
Yeah, it's clear they've been around for a long time, and you're absolutely right. Uh, they do cause fairly mild respiratory infections like the common cold. Now, there are other viruses that cause common cold too, like a rhinovirus gets its name from the nose. Not hard to see where that came from. But uh, so coronavirus isn't the only cause of, of uh, the common cold, but it is at least one cause. And, you know, this new infection, SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, that's a reminder that in the same family of viruses, you can have some that, in fact, don't even cause human disease, some that cause very mild human disease. And then, unfortunately, these, these relatively new coronaviruses that are, have made a lot of people sick and uh, killed, you know, something like 125 uh, or 2.5 million people worldwide. Is it easier to combat bacterial diseases like typhus than viral diseases like the coronaviruses? Yeah, I wish I could make that claim, but it really, it, we'd have to take it on a case-by-case -case basis. One big advantage we've had with many bacteria is Alexander Fleming's discovery, for which he received the Nobel Prize, Fleming's discovery of antibiotics, the first one, of course, being penicillin. So we have had an extra arrow in our quiver when it comes to combating bacterial diseases. Now for about a hundred years, uh, the antiviral drugs, like people with HIV AIDS take several different drugs, antiviral drugs. Uh, those are a relatively more recent development, but happily we have at least some medications that work well against both uh, bacteria and viruses. Do we know how viral pandemics begin? Uh, do they tend to spread in the same ways? Well, we certainly know how some of them begin. I mean, it looks as though uh, this COVID-19 pandemic may have begun in, in Wuhan province, China, uh, perhaps in a wet market where a lot of live animals were in regular contact with human beings. And it's thought uh, that, that, you know, the virus, which we might call a zoonotic species because it was originally in non-human animals, that it was perhaps in that market that it made the leap from a non-human animal to a human being. Turned out that was one virus that could infect a human being and reproduce uh, at a terrific rate, and pretty soon the infection had spread around the world. So we think at least in many cases, Global pandemics or epidemics begin when a virus jumps from a non-human species to a human being. And uh, that might apply to a wide range of things like uh, COVID-19 from bats, but also we've had uh, sexually transmitted diseases that come from uh, other primates and we can go on and on and on. So yeah, that's a um, great uh, example. And, and, and wait, I just want to ask, are they also suffering from pandemics, the, uh, the yes, animals that we get them from? Absolutely. So, uh, you know, the virus that uh, we think uh, HIV AIDS may be related to was a virus infecting primates. And it may have been, uh, in, you know, somewhere in Africa when a primate was being slaughtered uh, for food that that virus made the jump into human beings. So uh, there are certainly viral diseases of other species, and in fact, our household pets, 
like cats and dogs, ha have their own viral infections. In the book, well, you, you say that uh, diseases have shaped the evolution of our species. Uh, in what way? Well, one way would be that our immune systems have uh, evolved over time because they were being constantly challenged uh, by microbes, you know, trying to infect human beings and, and you know, perhaps take our lives. So, the, so, our so, wait, immune so wait, Could, does that mean that I probably am immune to the bubonic plague because I've inherited that? No, I wish I could say that were true, but I, I don't think any of us possess natural immunity to the bubonic plague. Uh, but I hasten to add, these days we have antibiotics that are very effective against bubonic plague. Of course, they didn't have those hundreds of years ago. But I think there are a number of diseases of the past that many of us would still be susceptible to. And, and one good example is smallpox. Uh, the World Health Organization declared smallpox eradicated uh, from the face of the earth in, in 1980. Terrible disease used to kill about 30% of the people infected of, with it. Well, those of us who were born, uh, say, by the mid-1960s, most of us have a scar on uh, one of our shoulders where we were inoculated against smallpox. But as it became clear the disease was being eradicated, we stopped immunizing young people against smallpox. So some of us older folks, uh, having received the vaccine, may still be immune to smallpox, but we have a couple of generations of younger people, you know, teenagers, young adults, middle-aged adults, who were never vaccinated against smallpox, we think the virus is only found in a few very secure laboratories around the world. But if for some reason the smallpox virus ever reemerged in human populations, uh, there, there would be many, many people around the world not prepared for it. I want to pick up the smallpox story after we take a little break. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and, and streaming live at WBAI.org. It was in 1919. Yes, men and women were dying. When they stopped, which the doctors call the flu. Yes, we shouldn't be surprised that previous pandemics have inspired blues songs. Uh, before we return to my conversation with Dr. Richard Gunderman, I need to take a couple of minutes to ask you to consider contributing to the station to help us get back to our, on our feet because this pandemic has taken a terrible toll on our financial situation. So we're asking everyone who tunes into Leonard Lopate at Large on a regular basis and is financially able to step up right now by calling 516-620-3602 or by going online to give to WBAI.org to help keep these one-hour deep dive conversations coming to you live on WBAI weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And, and one great way to support the station without having to lay out a lot of money at one time is to become a BAI buddy. There are listeners who contribute $10, $15, $20 or more each month 
to keep the station running and to show their support for what we do on this show. And, and I'm very pleased to announce that anyone who signs up today to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large by calling 516-620-3602 or by going online to give to WBAI.org will receive a free copy of Dr. Richard Gunderman's fascinating book, Contagion, Plagues, Pandemics, and, and Cures from the Black Death to COVID-19 and Beyond, as our way of saying thanks for joining your fellow listeners who've already given their support to this show. Our listeners are our only source of, of support because BAI doesn't take grant money or corporate sponsorships of any kind. We rely 100% on our listeners to support us. And that gives us a kind of a freedom that other stations don't have. Whatever level you feel comfortable contributing at, the important thing is that you keep, that you step up right now and make a tax deductible contribution of any amount so we can continue to bring you these long form interviews on topics that we hope are of interest to you. So um, why not step up and make that call right now 516-620-3602, or go online to give to WBAI.org. But please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large and from all of us at the show. Thanks. And now uh, back to Dr. Richard Gunderman. We're talking about his book, Contagion, Plagues, Pandemics, and Cures from the, the Black Death to COVID-19 and Beyond. Um, you, you were talking about your what you do when you're not writing books. You're at the University of Indiana? That's absolutely right, where I practice medicine. Uh-huh. Well, so do you, you don't see any of these diseases, do you, other than, than COVID-19 right now? Yeah, we certainly haven't seen smallpox, uh, essentially, in my lifetime. But unfortunately, COVID-19 is still with us. And I'm watching with bated breath to see if some of these variants we talked about earlier, like the so-called UK variant, which I think is now responsible for perhaps 20% of infections in the state of California, somewhere between 30 and 40% of infections in the state of Florida, I'm quite concerned that we may find ourselves in the midst of another surge here in the next few weeks or perhaps the month of April, although I certainly hope that's not the case. As I understand it, smallpox was a European disease, but didn't it play a role in Spain's conquest of the Aztec Empire? And also, um, uh, wasn't it used by uh, the British who handed out infected blankets uh, throughout the Americas, so the, the colonies that wound up becoming the basis of the United States? Boy, that's a great point. The history of smallpox is a very checkered one. We all remember the Spanish conquistadors of 500 years ago who went to Central and South America. Um, I think most of us assume they were successful in subjugating the native populations because of their superior military technology and tactics. Bad guns. But in yeah, in point of fact, it had a lot to do with the diseases they brought with them, like smallpox, to which you know the Aztecs and the Incas had no uh, inherent immunity. 
And so, you know, as I said before, smallpox is thought to have killed about 30% of the people. So it wreaked havoc on those civilizations, not only killing a large percentage of people outright, but also uh, sowing the seeds of demoralization and discord that I think made the, the, the work of the conquistadors much easier. And things get even worse, as you indicate, because we have clear documentary evidence uh, that... Uh, a couple of hundred years ago, uh, the British military, and I regret to say it, but in some cases, even our own forces, that is U.S. forces, uh, used smallpox as a weapon. You could, you know, rub the blanket on the skin of somebody infected with smallpox, fold it up neatly, carry it uh, down the road and hand it to a Native American Indian uh, uh, village, let's say, and, uh, you know, unleash the terrible scourge of smallpox upon them. So, you know, we, we think always if we're fighting infectious diseases, but there have been some unfortunate incidences in the past where they were actually weaponized. And wasn't smallpox a problem during the American Revolution? Uh, George Washington recovered from about a smallpox, didn't he? Which left That's him a immune. great point. When he was a young man, he went to the island of Barbados. By the way, the only time he left the continental United States, but uh, for his troubles, he uh, received a bad case of smallpox that had him pretty miserable for a period of weeks. But of course, he survived. And once he returned, he was immune from smallpox. But uh, when he was commanding the Continental Army against the British forces during the Revolutionary War, uh, Washington was very reticent to take our troops into combat because he knew that many of the European soldiers from countries like Britain and Germany had uh, had the infection in the past, but many of the Continental troops hadn't yet been infected. So Washington was concerned if they ever met in the field of battle, uh, you know, they might bring back smallpox and the American cause would be lost, not because of defeat in battle, but because uh, basically of an epidemic of infectious disease. Hadn't the British named it smallpox to distinguish it from the great pox? Yeah, that's exactly right. There have been a number of diseases associated with pustules on the skin. Another great the example cowpox. would be yes, cowpox, exactly. Um, and in fact, uh, the existence of scalp, cowpox played a huge role in enabling an important British uh, physician named Edward Jenner to develop uh, the first vaccines. Uh, you know, Jenner had observed that uh, typically young women milkmaids who've been infected with cowpox uh, didn't seem to catch smallpox. So he actually uh, did some research uh, to intentionally infected some people with cowpox and then weeks later uh, intentionally infected them with smallpox. He actually did this with his own 11 month old son, but he was able to prove that people infected with scalp cowpox a much more mild infection, uh, then weren't uh, susceptible to smallpox. And that was a discovery that uh, really spread around the world. I mean, you had, for example, Spanish traders taking that vaccination technology to the Americas, to China. So this is an example of a great discovery in medical history that spread around the world in a pretty short period of time. And some people have speculated that Edward Jenner, 
uh, doctor vaccination, so to speak. Edward Jenner may be the single person in human history who saved more human lives than anyone else. I personally wouldn't want to vouch for that, but it's at least a very intriguing possibility. You're right that Benjamin Rush was perhaps the greatest physician public servant in U.S. history. Uh, he had many achievements, but especially in regard to the yellow fever epidemic? Yeah, that's exactly right. Benjamin Rush uh, was a child prodigy. I think he still holds the record as youngest ever graduate of Princeton University. He graduated when he was 14 years old, but Rush was very precocious, very talented. He uh, trained in medicine, both in the United States and in Europe. Uh, he, you know, signer of the Declaration of Independence, probably the person who did more than any, anyone else to ensure the reconciliation of Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. But uh, when Rush was in Philadelphia in the, late 18, uh, in the late 18th century, a yellow fever epidemic broke out within Philadelphia. Uh, people who could, you know, wealthy people, including many doctors, uh, got out of the city because uh, they realized that the, the epidemic was occurring in the city. They didn't know why, but Rush, uh, to his great credit, uh, the, uh, the undying admiration of, of many American physicians, he stuck it out in Philadelphia. He felt it was his professional responsibility to be there for his patients, and uh, he, he stayed in Philadelphia treating patients throughout the epidemic. Now, it has to be said that some of the treatments Rush relied on uh, wouldn't necessarily pass muster today. For example, like having himself bled. I exactly. remember we did, we did a show in the past, uh, which included a lot of talk about Rush. And he, he's on that the cusp between old medicine and new medicine. That's absolutely right. He was a big believer in what they called phlebotomy or what we would call bloodletting. By the way, we still use bloodletting in, in the care of some patients, but not very many. But uh, Rush thought it was the, the, the most powerful weapon in the arsenal of medicine. And uh, so some of the patients he treated for yellow fever may not have benefited or at least benefited as much as he thought they did from his treatment. But the main message was he, you know, he stepped up to his professional responsibility and stayed there with his patients, even when it seemed to pose a great danger to him. Now, yellow fever, as I understand it, is spread by mosquitoes. Why does it suddenly pop up? Uh, mosquitoes are around all the time. Yeah, that's a great question. Well, one reason is because not all mosquitoes are carrying the organism that causes yellow fever. And another thing is, you know, sometimes very favorable conditions arise, presumably what happened in Philadelphia in the 1790s. And uh, then you can end up with a big epidemic. But of course, much of the time, uh, the, the mosquitoes aren't bearing the yellow fever organism or conditions just aren't fail favorable, temperature, humidity. There's not a lot of standing water around. And of course, we've learned one of the best ways to fight diseases that are borne by mosquitoes is not just to attack the viruses they bear, uh, but to make sure the mosquitoes don't have a good place to live. And, uh, you know, if you can keep mosquitoes from breeding in your neighborhood or in your town, uh, you do a lot to protect yourself against mosquito-borne diseases. And, and cleaning water is another way to protect ourselves. Didn't Abraham Lincoln's son, Willie, die of typhoid fever from drinking contaminated water from the Potomac? 
Yeah, we think that three, yeah, Lincoln lost three of his sons. Uh, I think it may have dr driven Mary Todd Lincoln just about crazy, the loss of those boys, and was certainly very difficult for Lincoln, but that's absolutely true. Lincoln's mother died uh, from, from a disease-related deed, uh, cows eating a poison plant, and then uh, Lincoln loses his own sons to uh, infectious disease. Washington, D.C. was probably not the safest place to be living in the 1860s. Uh, people who know the area can imagine that there was some pretty swampy land around there that was uh, very hospitable to uh, you know, waterborne diseases and, and the proliferation of mosquitoes and so forth. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Dr. Richard Gunderman, uh, Chancellor's Professor of Radiology, Pediatrics, Medical Education, Philosophy, Liberal Arts, Philanthropy, and Medical Humanities and Health Studies at Indiana University. Uh, he's the author of more than 700 articles, 12 books, most recently Tesla uh, in 2019 and Marie Curie in 2020. And we're talking about his book from 2021 called Contagion, Plagues, Pandemics, and, and Cures from the Black Death to COVID-19 and Beyond. Uh, of course, the, uh, the, the, the pandemic that has been discussed most recently uh, from the past is the so-called Spanish flu of 1918 that infected around one-third of the world's population and lasted for at least two years. Now, uh, it was spread to some degree also because of World War One. And I'm assuming that pandemics have tended to spread during World War One. But what finally ended it? That is a very interesting question. I don't think we fully know the answer to that. It just died out after a while? Too many people died? Or did we get herd immunity, do you think? Yeah, one possibility is that enough people had been infected and uh, survived that we had at least a modicum of, of herd immunity. Another possibility, if you look at that from the virus's point of view, uh, you know, the virus wants to survive and reproduce. Uh, that terrible influenza uh, could kill somebody in a single day. You know, you could wake up in the morning feeling well and, and be dead by midnight. Uh, that might not be the best strategy for a virus. Now, I'm not suggesting the viruses get together, you know, in a war room and concoct their strategy. But uh, from the point of view of survival and reproduction, to rapidly kill the host organisms you infect might not be a very good strategy. So another possibility is that you, over time, end up with more benign versions of the virus. You write about many of the key players in the struggle to fight diseases, like John Snow, the first person to study disease scientifically, Louis Pasteur, who established the germ theory of infection, Alexander Fleming, you mentioned him earlier. He discovered the mold juice that he named penicillin. Also, a key a couple of key figures in my life, Jonas Salk and Albert Sabin, because uh, polio was rampant when I was just a kid. Um, and I'm wondering whether polio has been largely eradicated. But you also mentioned names like Florence Nightingale, Joseph Lister, Max Pettenkofer. <laughs> I suspect there are any number of others that I'm leaving out. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the fascinating uh, parts about the history of infectious disease. There have been these heroic characters who uh, made signal contributions uh, to our understanding of, of the causes 
uh, the nature of infectious diseases, various ways we can respond to them. One figure I'm particularly impartial to was, by our standards, neither a scientist nor a physician, at least originally, but his name was Antony von Leeuwenhoek. He was a Dutch draper. You know, he made curtains, but he needed to be able to inspect very small threads. And he got interested in microscopy, the use of microscopes. And he was actually the first person, uh, you know, to identify bacteria because he was looking at things like water and uh, noticed that there seemed to be living organisms moving around in it. So, you know, that was just an absolutely crucial struggle, uh, discovery in our understanding of the history of infectious disease, opening our eyes to the fact that there's a whole world out there that human beings had previously been completely unaware of, the world of the very small creatures, so small that we can't even see them with the naked eye. Why, if we have learned so much over the years, do we continue to have to deal with all these new uh, pandemics uh, like MERS, SARS, Ebola, and uh, the, the current ones? And we still have syphilis, gonorrhea, herpes. Uh, they have not been eradicated. Yeah, HIV AIDS is still around. Yeah, HIV AIDS, which nobody had ever heard of in the year 1980, just 41 years ago, has since, uh, we think, killed about 37 million people worldwide. Uh, it's still the second most common cause of death from infectious disease, you know, a single organism, so to speak. It's number two on the list. So, uh, you know, we should not think for We have scientific medical powers, the likes of which would have, uh, you know, beggared the imaginations of our predecessors in science and medicine. But we do not have uh, the world by the tail, I don't think. I mean, these organisms, uh, bacteria, viruses, have been around a lot longer than we have. They vastly outnumber us. They reproduce, uh, you know, in a matter of minutes or hours, as opposed to human beings who take years and decades. And, uh, you know, th 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 I think they're going to at least uh, remain around as long as we are, and perhaps outlast us. So, uh, you know, we shouldn't think we've uh, summited some pinnacle from which we can look down on, you know, the poor benighted past where human beings had to deal with infectious diseases. I look for all of us to be getting common colds every year, you know, to be getting our flu immunizations every year. And, and who knows, perhaps in years to come, we'll be getting an annual uh, coronavirus vaccine for some new variant of uh, the one that now causes COVID-19. We have very little time left, but I'm wondering about how serious a threat bioterrorism is. Yeah, of course, a lot of that information is classified and I'm not privy to it, but I can say that governments around the world, especially their militaries, have been very mindful of the fact that, you know, if a virus like smallpox were introduced in a city, it could wreak havoc very quickly. One reason I think that doesn't happen is because there's no way to contain it. So, you know, if you introduce, let's say, smallpox in an American city, it wouldn't be very long before it was a worldwide pandemic. So at the moment, they're not very attractive weapons because they can't be targeted very well. But who knows, maybe in the future, uh, someone will devise a means to target bioweapons uh, more precisely 
And, uh, you know, we won't have to worry just about, uh, you know, artillery shells or atomic bombs. We'll be concerned about living organisms as weapons as well. Well, you mentioned earlier that we, we know how to treat smallpox, but aren't people still dying from it all over the world and dying from pretty much all of the illnesses that we've been discussing, despite the fact that we have treatments for many of them? Well, now, smallpox we've eradicated, but you're absolutely right. Many of the diseases we discussed are still with us, tuberculosis, for example. Uh, part of the problem is here in the United States, we enjoy a standard of medical care of public health, you know, that might be the envy of much of the rest of the world. Uh, but there are obviously other parts of the world that aren't as well off economically, that don't have the health, same health care resources and uh, public health services in force. And uh, as a result, uh, you know, there are parts of the world where you can get sick from drinking the water, just as an example. And uh, we've got a lot of work to do to bring uh, much of the world's population up to the standards that we take for granted. Dr. Richard Gunderman, G-U-N-D-E-R-M-A-N, Chancellor's Professor of Radiology, Pediatrics, Medical Education, Philosophy, Liberal Arts, Philanthropy, and Medical Humanities and Health Studies at Indiana University. His latest book, Contagion, Plagues, Pandemics, and Cures from the Black Death to COVID-19 and Beyond. What a great pleasure it's been talking with you today. Thank you so much for being on our show. I've enjoyed it immensely. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of this show. If, if you're new to our program and would like to hear more, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. Also, if you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to take just one last minute to ask for your support for this station. If you care about the kinds of things that we do on Leonard Lopate at Large, shows like what you heard today, we need your help to keep it going. So please step up right now and make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602 to keep the unique in-depth content we bring you on the show for weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And if you sign up today to become a BAI buddy in the name of this show, you'll receive a free copy of the book that we've been discussing, Contagion, Plagues, Pandemics, and Cures from the Black Death to COVID-19 and Beyond by my guest, Dr. Richard Gundeman. Uh, that means you become a sustaining member uh, until you decide you don't want to be one anymore. So one last time, the number to call us is 516-620-3602 or you can go online to give to WBAI.org, and we hope that you will make that tax-deductible contribution so we can send you this important book and, and keep going on this show. Uh, you're going to want to join us tomorrow when Dr. Herman Ponser will discuss his critically acclaimed new book called Burn. New research blows the lid of how we really burn calories, lose weight, and stay healthy. See you then.